0: Lemurians were giants, they were cyclops. You have fairies, gnomes, like the whole gamut of mythical creatures can be found there.
1: Justin McHenry is a historian and researcher who studies centuries-old documents while working at the American public university system as an archivist, those unsung heroes protecting our living past. As he developed a very personal relationship to the stories held within these documents, he began the project of writing comprehensive histories, including his forthcoming book, Lemoria, a true story of a fake place. For this episode, Justin tells me a story that I haven't heard before, an expansive tale of an apparent long-lost continent, first written about in scientific works, then harnessed by esoteric eccentrics and new age mystics, and then mutating over the decades into fantastical fuel that is embedded in the strangest of conspiracy theories and cults to this very day. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Hi, Justin. I'm so happy that you reached out to the show uh, and that you're here to tell me about something that I know almost nothing about, which is definitely a place I like to be. So I'm ready to be shocked and awed and surprised. So thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Uh, Chelsea, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to sit here and talk to you about Lamoria. I think it's uh, you're going to have a good time.
1: I know it. I, I trust you. <laughs> so, OK, for our audience and for me, uh, the uninitiated, would you give us just the briefest overview elevator pitch of what your book is about and kind of what the story of Lamoria, Lemur- Lem- right? Lamoria.
0: Yep. There you go.
1: (laughs) The story of what Lemuria is about before we get into the different phases of this tale.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so this is how I like to describe it to people. So what Atlantis is to the Atlantic Ocean... Lemuria is to the Pacific and Indian Oceans. It is the great long-lost continent of those oceans. You know, it shares some similarities with Atlantis. There was an advanced civilization that lived there and like Atlantis, Lemuria had a kind of rapid catastrophic demise and They often have been lumped together when you have people talking about Lemuria historically as part of a timeline where Lemuria precedes Atlantis and kind of set the stage for it culturally and spiritually, and their histories have been kind of like intertwined with one another. But Lemuria also has other mythology that has been formed around it, and the place has proven to be a very malleable place and shifting kind of like all over the place where for Atlantis and the discourse surrounding it has kind of settled around it being a sort of a representation of kind of these different Mediterranean-based cultures or even a remnant of a uh, pre-Younger Dryas kind of civilization. But uh, And that's for the people who believe like Atlantis ever existed in the first place, of course. But Atlantis is kind of all very terrestrial and like rooted in some sort of recognizable history or prehistory. Lemuria, on the other hand, is kind of like Atlantis letting its hair down. It's like the cousin <laughs> who'll like buy you cigarettes and like all over the place physically. Like it's in the Indian Ocean, it's in the Pacific Ocean. It butts up into California and gets into California. It's in the inner hollow Earth. It goes into outer space. And the Lemurians themselves were just as diverse, starting as like the missing link in human evolution to these. Jelly sack, gelatinous like creatures to giants hundreds of feet tall. There's cyclops and there's kind of tall Nordic looking humanoids to evil lizardy like dwarves and reptilians <laughs> to. Intergalactic space, brother. So it's kind of you kind of get the whole gamut of stuff there for Lemurian. The
1: whole family's here. <laughs>
0: exactly, man. It's it's a who's who. It's it's you're walking into the cantina at and <laughs> you know, Mos Eisley there, and at various times they all kind of possess superpowers and um, the ability to communicate telekinetically. They're all advanced intellectually. Lemurian women were you know hyper empathetic and possessed Jedi-like powers like the ability to move objects with their minds and project their thoughts into others. So it's it's just kind of where lots of continents get funky and weird.
1: Well, I'm even more excited now. I did not know that we would meet quite so many creatures throughout American history, like, you know, I'm hearing these different entities that you're talking about, and I'm already like, well, I remember when that was believed kind of generally (laughs) in America. Um, So I'm thinking of kind of like the moon hoax. Oh, yeah. uh, When they believed that there were all these different creatures on the moon, Mm -hmm. as well as things like the Cardiff giant and the giants that walked America pre Mm -hmm. the native cultures, which is, of course, a a wild story itself. But yeah, I feel like, as we said, the gang's all here. So Oh, yeah. All right. Why don't you start at the beginning for us?
0: Perfect. Well, okay. So unlike Atlantis, which kind of has a nebulous beginning, Lemuria has a very, very, very specific beginning. And it all started with a British ornithologist named Philip Lutley Schlater. And so in 1864, he published this paper kind of reviewing the mammals of Madagascar. And he hits upon lemurs. So lemurs are special in that... They are only found on Madagascar, and so it's a big old mystery about how they got there and stuff like that. And so, to solve the problem of how lemurs got into Madagascar and all these kind of lemur-like species in South America and Africa and also in India, this guy, Schlater, proposed basically a land bridge, a land bridge that connected South America to Africa, from Africa to Madagascar, from Madagascar to India. And so this big, huge, kind of long, misshapen land bridge that connects them all, just to kind of explain lemur migration, like prehistoric lemur migration, right? Got it. And then just at the very, very end, as like a parting shot, he just goes, hey, let's just call it Lemuria. And the name just kind of stuck from there. And so from the beginning, it kind of was taken up by some of the, like the most serious scientists in the 19th century, and it gets involved in a lot of the major scientific debates of the 19th century as well, which is kind of really fascinating. And so it, it gets really at the heart of the debate that was going on at the time about the permanency of continents and oceans. It was believed that the continents have stayed where they were, and it's just the oceans have kind of risen and fallen, and that's where you get the shape of the continents today. And it wasn't until the early 1900s when you have a kind of a German meteorologist a guy by the name of Alfred Wegener who um, proposed what we know as continental drift theory. And in his theory, he brings up Lemuria and calls the whole separation of Madagascar and India from Africa and how it butts up against Asia, creating the Himalayas. He called that the Lemurian compression. And so you can see right there, Lemuria is, you know, being used Mm -hmm. within the scientific field.
1: And so it was taken pretty seriously at the time as a totally plausible idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, and it was also especially before you get continental drift being taken seriously. And that didn't really come about until the mid You know, 20th century, when we started understanding more about plate tectonics and and all that kind of deep Mm -hmm. science stuff. I am nowhere near qualified to be talking about that. I'm (laughs) a historian by trade, so um, that is not in my field of study. But yeah, before that, you would have these guys like Slater and many, many other scientists kind of creating these land bridges to equate for all the different kinds of stuff going on in the world. The other great scientific debate that it got raveled around in is the debate on evolution. Mm. It was very, very deeply involved in that just because Charles Darwin published his On the Origin of Species in 1859. And then you have a, a German scientist, that is cat named Ernst Heichel. He was studying these things called radiolarians. He's kind of like crustacean-like little things in the mediterranean and then he reads darwin's on the origin of species and just kind of came fell madly in love with evolution and he really turned himself into darwin's like bulldog throughout the rest of the 19th century so he was the hype man he was the flavor slave to charles darwin's chuck d basically <laughs> and so he ends up writing a book called the history of creation in 1868 and that is where we get the first actual map of Lemuria. So Orange Tycho was a beautiful artist. Like he drew these really elaborate artworks that goes along with this like science that he was studying. And so he drew this beautiful map of Lemuria and basically how it was the cradle for humanity at the time on the origin of species doesn't really get into the whole debate about how you know, humanity evolved. It just kind of throws out the idea of evolution and you know, natural selection and, and those theories. And so history of creation kind of takes it one step further and goes actually into the nitty gritty of how humanity evolved. And at Heichel, he placed all of that evolution right smack dab in Lemuria. And so that's, we're basically the missing link. So the longest time people were looking for the missing link in human evolution. And that's where Heichel put his missing link was right there in uh, Lemuria.
1: So I'm guessing that because this is happening during the first Kind of debates, questions, entertainments, even around evolution, that we're going to get some eugenics involved in what we're talking about here. So, was there a way that the story of Lamoria started to take that turn at all when we're talking about a new race, right? Because I believe that there was also a new race that had apparently lived in this area. Is that right?
0: Oh, yeah. Heigl <laughs> most definitely did that. So he placed this directly in his whole kind of spiel on Race and the races, and he had this tree of life he created, and in that tree of life, he he ranks the races. And of course, you know the Nordic Aryan race is at the tippy tippy top, and everything else is kind of secondary and below. And so the the lower races were the ones that haven't evolved so much away from the the original Lemurians, while The Aryan, Germanic races, they have evolved since then. And, you know, they evolved. You can see that evolution because they were all interested in the same kind of stuff that Ernst Heichel was interested in. And and like they created the same kind of culture that he was he was interested in. So it was all kind of self-serving, really.
1: So, okay, we are in the uh, what would we say like this is around the 1920s that we left off?
0: So, yeah, no, our cycle, it was throughout the, from like the 1870s on up to like the
1: 19-teens. 19-teens, okay.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing about the um, history of creation. So, the history of creation was this wildly popular science book, so it would be like kind of like one of, you know, a Stephen Hawking book Mm -hmm. being released or uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or something like that. So it's kind of like this popular science work that was being released, and he would keep releasing new editions.
1: So this was a book then that wasn't just scientists. It wasn't just scientists that were reading this book. It was something that was more accessible to anyone who could actually read at that time.
0: Exactly. And it was also at the same time when you know, the Industrial Revolution was very much in and it was creating this kind of like a middle class, an actual first middle class mm-hmm. in the Western worlds, And so people were having more free time and more spendable cash to, you know, dive into topics that they're interested in, really, really, like almost for the first time. So you have, you know, a wider audience taking this and, and reading it and picking it up, too, and especially since it was so popular in Germany. My you know, Heichel has been called kind of like a quasi-Nazi. He died way before the Nazis took power. And the Nazis even actually banned his work when they did take power. Mm -hmm. But he was still popularizing this idea of a kind of white supremacist attitude at the times, too. So people were learning about evolution. They were also learning that they were the superior race, too. So it kind of goes hand in hand.
1: You know, on this show, we have talked a little bit about the history of pre-Nazi Germany myth making and how yeah. important that was as a foundation once the Nazis did arrive was this sort of um, nationalistic folklore that was not Mm -hmm. true folklore, but that was being written as a kind of way to bolster the spirit of Germany into, you know, feeling big enough to take these more nationalistic steps. And so I imagine that people in the States were adapting that story in a different way. Is that true?
0: Yeah, so um, I would say along those same lines, just to continue your thought on Germany, yeah. so creating that the mythic folklore. This will be like on the science side and like basically providing the scientific proof to bolster those folklore claims. Yeah, and yeah, it would have very very big impacts. It would have an impact in America on that like the next part of the the journey here. Okay. But one immediate thing it did have an impact on was more on the discussion of proving evolution. Mm. And so his work directly influenced this Dutch scientist, guy by the name of Eugene Dubois, who kind of quit his whole life, upped and moved his family to Southeast Asia and onto Java to basically search for the missing link. And the kind of crazy thing is he, he found it or found proof of it. And so he was credited with the like discovery of what's called the Java Man. All it was was a tooth, a skull cap and a thigh bone. But from those pieces, he devised one of the first uh, fossil records of mm-hmm. a pre-human. So like one of the first humanoids that walked erect on the earth. And I think it, it later became known as Homo erectus. So that's where like the first thing of Homo erectus. So. Lemuria can almost be not not credited, but um, providing inspiration for doing the the legwork in proving evolution in its day.
1: Well, that's like that's a pretty big deal, I would say. Yeah, right? right?
0: It's kind of it's, kinda, it's <laughs> kind of just funny that it would just be there, and it's like, oh, this guy um, he saw that Lemuria or Heichel placed the the cradle of civilization there in the Indian Ocean, and so he went searching around in places for where he could find fossilized proof of it and he he actually he actually did find it
1: okay so what comes next
0: so what comes next is is the fun stuff all right so ernst Heichel directly influenced madame helena petrovna blavatsky so madame blavatsky are you familiar with her
1: i sure am i think probably many of our listeners are but uh, a refresher would be i think a refresher would be very appropriate
0: Okay, so Madame Blavatsky was this uh, queen, like queen of the occult um, and and all of things mysticism in the 19th century. She started, uh, I think she was born in the Ukraine, um, traveled all over the place, got lots of interesting experiences before settling down at the age of 41, I believe, in New York City. And it was there when she settled in, in New York that her and a kind of a coterie of, of followers and like-minded individuals, created the um, Theosophical Society. Mm-hmm. And so it is from this theosophy um, which really gets it going. So she writes the first book. Her first book is Isis Unveiled. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like her creating a myth surrounding the idea of theosophy, just kind of give it a, a little oomph, mm-hmm. to give it some street cred. And so her and her her chum, Henry Steele Olcott, they moved to India. They set up the Theosophical Society of Agyar in in India and it kind of blossoms there into a worldwide metaphysical, spiritual movement.
1: Yeah, like a new philosophy almost that exactly. was very um, controversial at the time because it really didn't involve too much Christianity or the Christianity was pretty muted throughout it. So it was, you know, now we think of her in connection to things like satanic cults or, um, you know, occult mysteries and things like that. Though at the time, it was more of a research-based quote unquote group that kind of came together to look at Eastern philosophy over just Western philosophy and kind of like created this hodgepodge pseudo religion. Would that sound accurate?
0: Yeah, definitely. So she's not completely responsible for like, you know, people doing yoga in America or being (laughs) more involved or being just more aware of of Eastern practices. But she got that kind of ball rolling here in America. She opened a lot of doors in that way.
1: More after this. The rumors are true. I do enjoy a feel-good meal I can slip into the microwave and watch it spin, especially when that meal is personalized and delivered right to my door. With Factor, there are a whopping 35 different pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved ready ready-to-eat meals of all kinds with the welcome addition of over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. We're talking two-minute restaurant-quality meals, as well as smoothies and snacks, and so much more to enjoy at home or on the go. Baby, we've done the math. Factor's fast, upscale, ready-to-eat meals are less expensive than takeout and a whole lot faster when you are hungry right now. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule your deliveries anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off. If you're like me, you've been shopping in the boys section for too long, and let's just say there is a limit to the quality you will find there. But just imagine upgrading your wardrobe with actual luxury essentials at unbeatable prices, like 50-80% to less than similar brands. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I ordered my partner an oversized cable cardigan, and I got a Milano-stitched oversized shirt jacket. But then they were so cute and honestly nicer than anything I own, so now we are swapping them whenever I say so. So indulge in affordable luxury, go to Quince.com Hysteria for free shirts shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e dot com slash hysteria to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash hysteria and now back to the show but we do know that our girl <laughs> had some what we could call problematic opinions and i'm guessing that that might be where lamoria comes in
0: oh yeah so it was in her <laughs> she wrote a lot with um the the journal that the theosophical society um out. I think this journal was called Lucifer too. But it was really in the Secret Doctrine. Uh like she was writing it at the end of her life. It's just huge massive tome that basically sets the foundations of theosophy and and her worldview and her basically cosmos view like it it, it expands outward into the cosmos and everything and so it is there it's a two-volume work and then the second volume the anthropogenesis she really gets into the nitty gritty of evolution Mm -hmm. and that's where Lemuria comes in and Lemuria is the the home of the third root race in her thinking too kind of playing in the same racist tropes that you know Heichel and a lot well basically all of white scientist from the 19th century and on into the 20th century, really. But it's in The the Secret Doctrine that she really is a commentary on evolution and how it was out of sync with the cosmos. And so she has these seven root races. And so the first root race was just kind of these vague, like, mist-like beings. And they become slightly more physical, um, but still not truly physical beings in the second root race. But as in the third root race where they take a physical shape and they take physical shape on Lemuria here on Earth. The third root race where they were sexless, it was the spiritual cradle of humanity. And this was all happening 50 million years ago. And Lemuria was a single continent. So it's kind of like a precursor to Pangea, what what we know now of early Earth history. But this is where we get like, Lemurians were giants. They were cyclops. They had this like lump on their forehead that turned into an eye and that allowed them to be telepathic. It was also the golden age when gods walked the earth and all of that kind of stuff. And what's funny about it is like throughout the whole thing, she was just trash talking Ernst Heichel, (laughs) calling him a moral murderer, a crass materialist and stuff like that. So it was, it was kind of funny stuff for like, you know, a a history geek like myself
1: oh yeah i love a good uh esoteric feud <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> can we call it that mm-hmm. yeah.
0: <laughs> and what's 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 also funny is so um so yeah while she's bashing him in the the secret doctrine that comes out in 1888 the very next edition of heichel's book it cuts out Lemuria altogether so like the map that had Lemuria on it he just kind of x'd it out because he didn't want any Kind of connection there between oh. him and Blavatsky, so it, it's kind of funny. There was like a, a little, little silent feud going on there in, in the in the writings and in the books.
1: But that was like quite a change for him to ch- kind of change his whole scientific statement to avoid getting made fun of.
0: Exactly right. <laughs> Just to avoid any kind of connection with with her too.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's fair.
0: Yeah, <laughs> probably
1: probably for the best. Okay, so at this point, we've got kind of the extraterrestrial slash just strange primordial beings that are living on Lemuria, according to Madame Blavatsky. So do those stick? Like, what happens next with the creatures and the idea of what this place once was?
0: Yeah, and so what, what happens is... The direct next generation of theosophists after her really cement that kind of mystical Lemuria. So it will never, ever be back in like a um, scientific setting. It will only be moving forward in this kind of um, weird, yeah, esoteric kind of world.
1: Yeah, like almost paranormal.
0: Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's through the works of like her direct disciples, Annie Besant and Charles... Leadbeater, and also um, Rudolf Steiner. Yeah, Besant and Leadbeater. Have you have you run across them at all in your... I haven't. Uh, they will be good ones to get into. So Annie Besant was uh, an English woman, really like controversial English woman um, in the, the mid to late 19th century. She was like you know, campaigning for, you know, birth control in England and even maybe quasi like abortion rights in England as well. She would move to India to kind of take charge of the Theosophical Society there and then become just really entrenched in the Indian like freedom movement to get away from, you know, the colonial English role too. So she's kind of a really fascinating woman, but she's uh, like intellectually entwined with this, just creep of a man, this just worthless human being called Charles Leadbeater. He started. Um, he was a Anglican priest, I believe.
1: Always a good place to start.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you can you can. I think just from saying that, you you kind of know where the story goes. So he re- renounces that, and he turns to Theosophy. And as as he's a, in Theosophy, he becomes a. Um, basically a serial child molester. And so it's just a really horrible story.
1: Oh my God, okay.
0: So they wrote a series of books together and the one dealing directly with Lemuria was Man, Whence, How, and Whither, which came out in 1913. And that's where it gets really kind of crazy and weird and also really confusing too. So according to this, their whole kind of theology going back, they have beings from the moon and Mars traveling down to Earth in these basketworks, like, so these wicker baskets. No. Yeah. Like,
1: they're lowering them on some sort of pulley system?
0: Or, like, balloons. Okay. I, it's it's not really that, but they just call them basketworks. Okay. <laughs> and so they're, they're dropping down to help humanity along. And that's where they meet the Lemurians. And the Lemurians were the humans that were here being helped out by these Martians and moon people. It's where they kind of were taught civilization as well. And Lemurians at this time were these huge, ugly creatures that were gorilla likes. They had egg-shaped heads and were like huge. But thanks to these Martians and and moon people, they kind of um, gradually evolved into more human-looking, like
1: Okay. All right. So this is a story I feel like we hear in different iterations where almost like the missing link is some kind of alien, where it's like the aliens came down and either bred with or taught us some sort of more civilized way of existing, right? Yes, exactly. So so where do you think these ideas came from that these two people were writing about? Do you have any idea? Because it seems like it's a kind of left field type of story to tell did she cite or did he cite any previous sources or is it just kind of like lost to time
0: it's just lost to time um <laughs> and that's that's the funny thing because blavatsky if you read the secret doctrine even Isis and that, like she has copious amounts of sources and like footnotes and stuff so you know where she's getting her information from Okay, yeah. It might be from like a secret book that only she knows how to read, but <laughs> she's at least providing those sources, but for uh Basant and Ledbetter and, and others, they're just like, yep, eh, this is how it is, guys. You got to you got to you got to deal with it. Wow. Sorry.
1: All right. <laughs> okay, so does this begin to start to inform new age belief? yes okay
0: very much so and that happens actually probably in the like the, the <laughs> I was gonna say that the next iteration of Lamoria <laughs> and with um Church Ward, like he drew a map of Lamoria and it's very much kind of close to the coast of California but what the next next part is it's just a move into California basically so California becomes the... East Coast of Lemuria.
1: Awesome. Okay, got it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm so glad. I knew we were going to end up in California. I just knew yeah. it.
0: <laughs> it's like where everything ends up, too.
1: It is. It's at least where everything related to aliens in the new age seems <laughs> to uh, seem to end up.
0: So yeah, like in the 1920s and 30s, you really get like this golden age of Lemuria in america and it's all centered around mount shasta mount shasta in mm. northern california and so mount shasta if people know should look it up it's this beautiful peak in northern california and just kind of just rises up almost out of nowhere kind of near the oregon california border so For my research, looking into the background of Mount Shasta, I I saw nothing about, like, mystical things happening in Mount Shasta in the decades before, like, 1927. Mm -hmm. There was all just, you know, travel literature about, like, taking nice hikes up there and and stuff like that. But no one encountering, like, crazy creatures or mystical beings or all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But... It is in 1927 where you have the Rosicrucians. So there's another fun group for you, yeah. kind of creating this myth of mystical stuff happening out Mount Shasta, and it's all revolves around um, Lemurians being like within the mountain. There, Lemurians had kind of like retreated after their civilization fell into the the mountain of mount shasta and kind of lived there have been living there for years and so you have um the name of the rosicrucian group is called amorc so a-m-o-r-c um it was uh, created by a guy named harvey spencer lewis and so he's a kind of weird weird character in the story and so he, he wrote these series of articles talking about all the weird stuff happening there in mount shasta In the 1920s
1: what kind of weird stuff was happening there
0: you have weird lights people seeing weird lights on the mountain um there was a uh, astronomer um by the name edgar larkin who had witnessed this magical city on the mountain through his telescope okay cool (laughs) mind you his telescope was in pasadena like outside of pasadena (laughs) And so for people who don't know, California is a really, really big freaking place. And so it's about six to 700 miles between his observatory to Mount Shasta. So,
1: people are like, if he has a telescope, we can trust him.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so they were talking about that. They were talking about these weird Nordic looking people, like tall humanoids, um, coming down and buying supplies at the local local general stores and like paying in gold nuggets and just like not waiting for change to be made and stuff like that. So you got these kind of weird, weird stories popping up.
1: And are these stories popping up from like locals or are these mostly coming from people writing about this and creating this lore for whatever reasons they have?
0: It comes solely from this one person, Harvey Spencer Lewis. I could not find any, any accounts of these stories before this and only after this would you get um, stories kind of like building upon it.
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: So people just kind of take off with it and kind of repeat them and then build on them as well. And so you have, oh, like a bunch of fun stories. I would just, I would just call them fun. So you have like gnomish creatures pop around Mount Shasta. Mm-hmm. On one of the flats, on one of the, the faces, I think it's the western, like the northwestern face, there's this like 60 acre field full of these grass-covered nipples, is what they've been described as. Got it. And so they're just these weird little, like, I don't know. No one really knows, and no one has um, really done much research into them about where they came from or how they how they were created. But people have been talking about how those were built by these l- little gnomish creatures to, you know, as like, you know, mating rituals and agricultural and, and all sorts of things too.
1: Okay. All right. So we've got gnomes. <laughs> you, you have
0: you, know, you have fairy sightings as well. Lots of UFO sightings in the mm-hmm. area and then um, a lot of fun Bigfoot sightings too. You have someone claiming to see like Bigfoot breastfeeding on the mountain?
1: On the mountain's nipple?
0: No, no. Yes. Okay. No, 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 no just <laughs> No, no, not on the nipple itself, but just but at at the at the nipple of the of the lady Bigfoot.
1: Got it. Okay.
0: Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, you have fairies, gnomes, like the whole gamut of mythical creatures can be found there in Mount Shasta, along with just a bunch of weird, like, people just showing up too. There was a story of these, like, mist beings showing up in a a local's house and just kind of staying there and bothering their daughter for a couple of weeks.
1: And you said mist beings? Yeah. Yeah. Just like three
0: mist-like beings
1: oh that's kind of freaky yeah yeah it yeah. would be
0: not be fun to to have them as roommates for a, for a while
1: okay so we've got bigfoot fairies gnomes aliens yep. mysterious lights mist beings yep. kind of a lot of touchstones of even today's conspiracy theories and paranormal sightings whatever you want to you know those two mm-hmm. that hold hands so well but this is Pre the kind of explosion of what we would call the new age in America, maybe like the big popularization of that 60s, 70s, right? We're still yeah, in the yeah. 20s, 30s right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Okay. All right. So, how does this kind of keep chugging along toward that point?
0: So, you have a, a, a really good connecting event. So, the like, I call it the golden age of Mount Shasta is from the, the 20s to like the 40s. And then Right as World War II was winding down, you have something called the Shaver Mysteries being published. Mm -hmm. And so the Shaver Mysteries are a series of articles that were published in Amazing Stories, which is this pulp science fiction magazine from 1945 to 1947. Um, And they were written by a guy named Richard Shaver. And so Richard Shaver had kind of a long history before publishing these of, you know, being in and out of mental institutions throughout the 1930s and right before he published his, his stories, he, he wrote to Amazing Stories, and, um, and it was right after getting out of one of these, these mental institutions. And so he wrote to the the editor at Amazing Stories. It was a fellow named Ray Palmer. And so Ray Palmer was big into like the, the science fiction world. He was like first wave science fiction fan back in the 1920s. Um, and he kind of risen over the years to edit this magazine. And so he saw Richard Shaver's story. And so this was, Shaver basically describing what was happening to him as a kind of like a targeted individual. Mm-hmm. And so he believed that there were these evil dwarf-like beings that were like kind of hounding him and have been hounding him for years and years and years um and they were re- kind of responsible for everything from killing his his brother to all of the problems that he he had had and witnessed. And so and he also tells the story of being taken down inside like the inner hollow earth and, and seeing and learning about their evil machinations and, and stuff like that. And so and he, he wrote his story as all being real. Right. So he wrote mm-hmm. this true to him story. Ray Palmer took that and was like, okay, this is great. So he, he basically saw it as like gold for his magazine, something that can sell issues. Yeah. And so, yeah, he, he put it on there and he said it was all true. like right. So he was saying everything that happened here is true. So even in this science fiction magazine, everything that's happening is true. And that sort of mm-hmm. kicked off this new wave of LaMoria here because all of this f- for Richard Shaver was happening on Lemuria, And the first story to be published was I remember Lemuria. And the second story would be Thought Records of Lemuria. And so it's the um, same thing. He's getting into the, the whole Lemuria mythos. Um, it was like tens of thousands of years ago. You have these giant races of beings coming to Earth and settling Earth. These were like 300-foot-tall giants, too. So, And the Earth at the time was known as Lemuria. So Lemuria was just the whole Earth. Mm -hmm. They built these great machines, and they also built these bioengineered beings or robots. And that's what kind of humanity evolved from. We evolved from these bioengineered robots of these um, giant gods.
1: So they were like a very advanced society.
0: Yes, very, very advanced. But the sun became too poisonous for them. And so they kind of dug into the earth and lived underground in earth for for a long time but even that proved too poisonous for them and so they eventually went off earth and left all of us bioengineered beings here to kind of deal with it
1: okay <laughs> yeah
0: and you, you and i we we evolved from that but some of these bioengineered beings they they were left underground and kind of became these evil what he calls darrows these evil lizardy like dwarves that Are responsible for everything from stealing your keys to, you know, assassinating President Kennedy and and that sort of thing. So it's kind of everywhere.
1: Do you think that I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, but do you think that this is part of the reptilian conspiracies that we'd see later?
0: Yes, very much so. Very, very much so. Yes. You have this underground race of almost reptilian like to begin with um, creatures. And they're, you know, messing with everything. And they also have um, shape-shifting abilities as well, I think. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) And another thing, too, was um, one of the first proponents of the whole reptilian thing was a guy named um, Maurice Dorrell. His real name was Claude Doggins. But he and his organization would advertise in amazing stories. And so you can see his advertisements right alongside these Richard Shaver stories.
1: Oh, that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's all swimming in the same thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so we're in California. What's coming next after this guy's work? Who's who's taking up the mantle next? Who's taken up the torch?
0: What's interesting is this creates, so Shaver helps create this like kind of conspiratorial bent to the, the whole thing, the mm-hmm. whole surroundings. And so it starts getting... More and more political too. So um, that's when you have people like um, Guy Ballard. I don't know if you've ever run across Guy Ballard, but he's. A, I
1: have not. Oh,
0: you should you <laughs> should look up him and Edna Edna Ballard. They created this um, group called the I.M. Activity, which is now based out of Mount Shasta, um, or you know, surrounding Mount Shasta. Mm-hmm. But he's a. Um, he got his start by claiming to have met St. Germain. Yeah, so he was walking around Mount Shasta one day. He met St. Germain, um, and he gave him like this milky concoction and took him on this magical mystery tour. <laughs> okay, great. But he created this religious political movement. So it was like super ultra right during the 1930s and 1940s. So it was like almost a quasi-fascist like fascist right-wing organization that was... W- walking around. So it was walking this kind of fine line between politics and kind of this new age spirituality, because part of his theology was like, there is a new age coming, there's a new world coming. And so it was Mm -hmm. very much in that, in that realm. And then you have another group called the Lemurian fellowship that would be created in the late 1940s, early 1950s as well. And they were talking about, you know, this new age, this new world being created. And, and their whole spirit and they're still around too they're still out in california as well i believe um and it's like you have to be prepared for this new world you have to you know study for it and become a a citizen of this new world mm-hmm. and then also you have starting around this time in the 1960s is when you know you have a, a series of channelers coming through as well oh, so yeah. jane roberts is a big one the she channeled the seth material you have um, Uriel and the Unarius Academy of the Sciences, which is also out in California, too. Mm-hmm. So they, they talk a lot about space brothers coming in from Lemoria and helping us along and, and channeling them and, and their past histories and things like that. And that would lead to the 1980s with someone like Jay-Z Knight who would channel Ramtha. <laughs> I
1: have some personal connections that we won't oh. get into, but I grew up uh, in Olympia, which is right outside Yelm, where she okay. yeah. still dwells. Yeah. <laughs> but please, please continue.
0: Well, like her her channeled entity was a person named Ramtha. And so the whole Ramtha backstory is set in Lemoria and how Lemurians were this persecuted race by the, the Atlanteans. And so it really develops this kind of persecurial flavor to the Lamorian story too, so it's starting to get a, I would say, a little darker and a little bit more like put upon.
1: Wow, I had no idea. Sorry, you're blowing my mind. I yeah, did not know. Right? I did not expect Lamoria to be part of the backstory of Ramtha. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yep, it's he. He, he came from there. I think he was. He was a 14-year-old Lemorian slave who, basically, like the story of Spartacus. So he he <laughs> rose up to um, lead his people out of slavery by the Atlanteans, and he had this like long campaign uh, against them. He was stabbed in the back by like a Atlantean assassin, um, which led to his kind of spiritual awakening and, and stuff like that too. So well,
1: there you go. More after this. And now, back to the show. Okay, so, all right. I imagine, and not so much in Ramtha at this point, but if this is indeed being adopted by, like, a right-wing mysticism tradition, is it starting to have anything to do with Christianity? Are those two things blending together in any way? Um... No, not
0: not really. You would have it closest with the ballards and the i m movement um just because his his odeal was saint germain saint germain just saint Germain that and then when to like gain popularity, he would be like. Oh, hey, let's let's add Jesus to this, and so, mm-hmm. and then he like would specifically say, "Hey, Jesus said Saint Germain is a, is is a, like a true disciple. He's a true, um, also prophet too." So
1: Jesus just said that at some point to someone. Yeah,
0: he, he's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it's in there. He's got to yeah. read the fine print.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, all right. So, if not Christianity, then definitely politics. These two things are continuing to be connected.
0: Yes. Okay. Yes, very much so. And it's also carrying on. So if you look into like 4chan or 8chan or, or whatever the right wing boards are now, like if you look into like the where Lemuria pops up there, it's all in this kind of like very much like a, this persecuted society and how like okay. this is what happens. It almost it's an example. Like this is what happens when you let science and reason, you know, kind of dictate a society it will you know, crumble like Lamoria did. Or it was just basically, it's a tool now. Lamoria is, is being used as a tool by a lot of people to kind of just promote their own um, ideas.
1: So let's talk more about kind of how Lamoria's used today and what the stories are that people are telling about it and using it like what they're using it for. So could we just talk more about how it's been woven into maybe some of the bigger conspiracies that we've been hearing?
0: Yeah, so it's it's been right there at the middle of the the reptilian. Conspiracy um, theories that are going around. It's kind of at the heart, at the beginning of it. It's most prevalently known today, basically, as being um, the Lemurian crystals. So people are into crystals and and gems and, and whatnot. It's been like deeply rooted in that lore. And that has its own kind of like side story to it where these basically ancient aliens have come down and seeded the planet with these Lemurian crystals to use as fuel for their spaceships going forward. So um, we've been, you know, mining these crystals and you can unlock the powers yourselves for them. So yeah, there's this um, lady who started her kind of own cult, like social media cult, basically, on Instagram and and everything, on Facebook. Um, She was Amy Carlson. Mm -hmm. And so she, her... Her cult was called Love Has Won and so she was like a cult.
1: I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great.
0: Yeah, yeah. She's the she's a lady that would um took so much colloidal yes. silver that she kind of had this blue hint to right. her. Yeah. And so like her spiel was like she was from Lemuria. She was one of her past lives. She was a Lemurian queen. But also one of her past lives, I think she was Donald Trump's daughter or nice. or something along those lines too. So so that, that that's it. kind of gives you like, it's just something, it's like something that gets sprinkled in. It's like um, cumin or or paprika or something. It's just a, a spice that gets added to people's backstories to give them kind of more, a little bit more credibility.
1: Yeah, totally. Okay, so is there any of its like original root race stuff still going on there? Like are white supremacists using this story in any way? to tout their own superiority? Um, I
0: wouldn't say it goes like Lemuria deep to have them okay. tout their own their superiority, but they, I could still see them using, you know, the Heichel's words or... You have a lot of mixture now between New Age, like, influencers and these kind of right-wing political, you know, influencers as well. And so they've, they've been converging together. And I think... The intersection of that Venn diagram is like both of those are mostly you know, white people, so they've they've been centered around that, and that 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 shared kind of whiteness has been you know helping them.
1: So, do you think it's more that it gives people more of a story or proof for like massive government cover up? Is that part of what really fuels the conspiratorial part of it?
0: Yeah, I think so. Okay, it just helps with that too, and then you can you can see that with the um. One of the funny things is, um, so Michael Flynn, who was what Trump's candidate to be National Security Advisor,
1: yeah, I think that's right,
0: but he was just a total, you know, jerkfish too. Yes, but he he was he he like totally cribbed a one of like Ballard's like whole deal too. So it, it's kind of funny. So he the only thing he changed was I am to we will. But everything else that like a speech he gave was was the same thing. So you you still see these playing upon the same ideas and rhetoric from, you know, 70, 80 years ago today, too.
1: Okay, so just to bring this all together, I'm interested in both why you are so interested in this? Like, what what brought you to this? What continues your interest? What actually brought you to being obsessed enough to write a book? And then kind of on top of that, why is this an important story for us to understand? And what can it teach us about kind of the present day, do you think?
0: So, yeah, I got interested in, like... <sighs> I just have always generally been um, interested in, you know, more mysterious things, um, topics. X-Files was one of my favorite TV shows growing up. And so just being generally interested in that, I, I've heard little bits and pieces of LaMoria, um, stories about Blavatsky and, and, you know, reading a little bit about her and then just seeing Lemoria pop up there, knowing a little bit about, like, the Shaver mysteries and seeing Lemoria pop up there. So... I was looking to like, hey, you know what? I, I want to write a book one of these days. What would be a good topic? So I was like, I just looked into this and it just kind of kept spreading and growing. And the story kept kind of like spiraling more and more out of control into kind of crazy new places. I get that. <laughs> yeah. And, and and what? as I was researching it, the thing that I, I took away most from it was basically how false narratives come to be. And you can sincerely find that in the, the Lemuria story of how it kind of goes in one direction right it gets very much a um, theory of science and how it kind of has morphed and traveled and been contorted all out of misshape from its original being and it's kind of um, kind of similar to what a lot of narrative is going on politically and with science today and and a lot of different um, opponents to science and reason that's going on right now so I, i saw a lot of similarities there about how kind of just taking an idea and how it can be shifted and contorted into into anything you want it to be.
1: And I think that that's so important, because it is the way and not to say that you can do this for someone who's already a believer in it, because you know, that's pretty hard. But to trace back, and then kind of fast forward through each, like, individual person that took that story and added their own, you know, spice to the mix, you can just see it's evolution essentially and that is a really powerful thing because it takes a little bit of this like mysticism out of it where you're like oh this is just this story that's been passed down and it's like no it's a story that's been passed down and altered either by people who have a vested interest in selling books or by people who perhaps are a little bit mentally unwell and do believe these things a mixture of Mm -hmm. both perhaps and then also people who are trying to create a philosophy and bring other people into that philosophy. So it does the work of demystifying the mystical, which I think is really, really important. Not always fun, but in this case, I would say definitely very fun to go through and hear the different iterations that kind of come throughout different moments in time. I think that's kind of our favorite thing here at American Hysteria, so.
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much, Justin. This has been just so interesting to learn about very unexpected moments so uh i really appreciate you coming on oh thank you so much for having
0: me chelsea i, pr- I very much appreciate it
1: this was american hysteria make sure you check out justin's book Lamoria: a true story of a fake place you can find the pre-order link in our bio If you want to support our show and get more of it, you can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get ad-free episodes and bonus content, including access to our other podcast, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I tell you stories from the cutting room floor and give you a look behind the scenes. So subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, or you can go to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you can get ad-free episodes and bonus content as well. We also have this new thing going on called the Urban Legends Hotline, where you can go to Americanhysteria.com and leave us a recording of an urban legend you remember from growing up. And if it sparks joy within us, we might do a deep investigation and you'll hear your own story on our show. That's our Urban Legends Hotline at Americanhysteria.com. This episode has sound design by Clear Como Studios, was produced and edited by Miranda Zickler, and I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great day.